Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, I, uh, I think I want to uh, have a rant today. So is everybody in the mood for a good rant? <laughs> so you say. No, yeah, take the gloves off. Well, uh, probably not an actual rant, but uh, just some things to think about. I, I would like for you to think about this, uh, this statement. The truth takes care of itself. The truth takes care of itself. And I think in some very broad sense, you know, truth is truth because it's highly pragmatic. It works or it doesn't work. If something doesn't work, it can't really be true if it does work ultimately. And, and obviously we're talking ultimately. Ultimately, the truth takes care of itself. So why don't you kind of keep that in your brain, keep that in your head as we kind of journey together. If you've been around a while, you know that my father-in-law and family, um, they, uh, they run a, a micro machine shop back in Texas. And uh, they build all kinds of stuff. All kinds of close tolerance parts for the Defense Department and, you know, various other things and make a wide variety of things from, you know, the radar array for a Superhawk drone uh, to one of the top steel guitars in the country, you know, so it's a weird, it's a weird variety of things. Years ago, I, when I was first in ministry, I, I was uh, at my wife's home church, so her whole family, and you know, when you start out in ministry, you don't make a lot of money. You don't really get into the big money until later on. <laughs> so I, uh, I was uh, doing some part-time work over at the shop, the shop, and uh, working on a CNC machine and doing some things to make a little extra money. And and uh, I, I remember that a guy came into the shop, and uh, he actually went to our church, and he had a little piece of wadded-up paper, and he approached my father-in-law and he said, uh, listen, I need to build this thing. I've invented this thing and I need to build it. And my father-in-law unwrapped the paper and, and uh, it said across the top, perpetual motion machine. Everybody with me? You, you understand? Perpetual motion. It's something you set in motion that never stops. I mean, this has been a pursuit. People would like to build this. This would be a good thing if, if such a thing could exist. And, you know. and so he had designed it and and he said to my father-in-law, I really want to build this. I'd like for you to build the prototype. And my father-in-law said, I don't think we should do that. Um, I don't think it'll work. And he said, well, you know, I need you to machine. I need very fine machining, and I need exactly the right materials in order for it to function. You know, I can't do a cheap version because that wouldn't work. I've I got to do it. And my father-in-law really resisted. And, and eventually he went and talked to his wife and said, look, we don't want to charge your husband a bunch of money for this thing because... We don't really think it's going to work. And uh, talked to his kids, and they all said, listen, he's not going to be quiet till we get this thing built. So they built it. They built a prototype of a perpetual motion machine. Now, what my father-in-law knew the first time he looked at that piece of paper was that it could not possibly work. And it could not possibly work because of one irrefutable force in the universe. It's called friction gravity it can't work it's impossible <laughs> it defies the laws of physics there is no way to build a perpetual motion 
machine. And I think about that story, and I think about how that works in our culture today. And it seems to me that you and I very often are hearing things, and they may as well be building a perpetual motion machine. I hear things out of the political wokeness of our culture, and I kind of stop and reflect, and I go, that's a perpetual motion machine. That's what they're working on. That has no chance of working. It has no, it sounds good. It sounds really good, but it has no chance of working. In the activism of our culture, a lot of great ideas floating around. May as well be building a perpetual motion machine. Because it has no chance of working. And here's the issue. At the end of the day, there is a force that works against all of that. And there's a force that works for other things. And that is truth. At some point, we have to get to the truth. We can't have little pieces of the truth because untruth creates friction in such a way that it drags everything down. And I think that's going on in our culture in big ways. In fact, I think when you stop and you think about this book and you think about our concepts of justice and mercy and equality and an end to racism, when you think about all of those things, these are biblical ideas. In fact, you could certainly argue that whether they were theists or Christians, the people that founded this country founded it based on this book. The ideals that were woven into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights of this country were woven and taken from this book. We believe that there are certain truths that are self-evident, that all people are created by God and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights such as life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. See, that stuff's right out of here. And when you try to leave that piece out of the wokeness and the activism, well, there's just an untruth in it. And it can't work. It can't fulfill its destiny. We have become intellectually lazy as a culture. Amen? And I think when you stop and you think about that, uh, the, the ways in which we converse, the ways in which we are communicated to, there is an intellectual... And I find myself caught in this. I find myself that, you know, I'll read something... And then I'll share it, you know. <laughs> Although I didn't really read the whole article, and I didn't necessarily do any research behind the article. I just read it, and now I'm sharing it. <laughs> I'm glad none of you guys do that. So we're thinking about this reality. A, a few weeks ago, I came across an article written by a guy named Craig Axford. Uh, this is the title of the article, if you want to know where the prejudice of the article is going. From the information age to the era of intellectual laziness. So there's some, you know, little signaling going on as to what you might read. Love this quote. Modern America is what happens when we give people a powerful communications tool, when we give a powerful communications tool to people who haven't learned how to think. I'm going to read it one more time. Modern America is what happens when we give a powerful communications tool to people who haven't learned how to think. That's kind of true, isn't it? It's kind of true. He talks about in the article about the evolution of our educational system and how it worked and how it used to work versus how it works now. And this is no slam against teachers or the educational system because the truth is, for all the right reasons, we've changed the way we do school. 
and maybe you've been a part of this and you understand it. We changed the way it worked because we didn't want anyone to not have an equal level of education. So we've said, here are the skill sets that all our kids need. Let's get them taught, you know, no child left behind, all of those programs. And the idea was there was a core kind of learning and every kid was going to graduate from high school with a, a quality education. The motives have been great. But that differs entirely from how school used to be done. It has evolved over the decades. In fact, when I was growing up, uh, and for a lot of us we remember this, uh, school was a lot different. It was very different. There was time for all kinds of things in school. There were arts and, and you know, all kinds of things were having a very uh, broad sort of experience for a child that sort of appealed to all of the levels of their consciousness and a very conscious effort to teach children how to evaluate values. In fact, we had a curriculum in the 70s in which we literally were given scenarios and in class had to discuss what do we think the ethical thing, the right thing, how do you make value judgments. We, we literally studied in school how to make value judgments, how to use our logic, how to find out things. Now, it was the 70s, uh, and I, I shared this in the last service and somebody came to me after and goes, well, I grew up in the 60s, it was worse. The 60s and the 70s were a time of cultural revolution in the United States, and there were lots of things going on, and there were lots of things confronting kids that they'd never been confronted with before. And so these values, so 70s, the dominant thing was drugs. And so we spent tons of time in school learning to say no to drugs, learning to evaluate situations and circumstances. Axford in the article, he just says, listen, this evolution has become a, a, a situation in which we are teaching kids what to think, but we're not teaching them how to think. And it's beginning to show up. It's beginning to show up all over the place. He cites a study that was done recently among graduate students at some of our premier institutions around the country. Students that you would believe have a very tight handle on how to discern truth from fiction. And they presented these, uh, the subjects of the study with a series of articles, and they were to discern whether they were true or not. That was their task, was to determine whether they were true or not. A full 50% read the headlines and nothing else, accepted the headline as truth, and moved on. Another 25% read the article, but nothing else, just read the article and let it stand on its own. Only 25% chose to do research into the validity of the arguments represented in the article to verify or to refute what was being said. That's, a, that's astonishing. I, I mean, granted, uh, there's a lot of information coming at us, and we do understand information bias, don't we? I mean, we are reading articles, we are being fed articles in our social media that confirm what we already read, that confirm the things that we read and lingered on. And the whole idea of social media is not to teach us or inform us. The idea of social media is to engage us. Amen. My favorite videos on social media right now are the ones that run for like 14 or 15 minutes and they're opening a box and they're just waiting and you're waiting the whole time for them to open the box. You're just waiting for the reveal and it's 14 or 15 minutes and then finally at the very end. And it's just completely, I mean, your whole body is at some point, it's just jittering, you know. And you know why I like those so much? Because they're honest. I mean, the honest truth is, there's nothing in the box. There's nothing coming. Whatever you're waiting on, it won't be worth it. But I just want to engage you for 14 or 15 minutes because I'm getting paid. Amen? I mean, what a great thing. It's just, you know, and if you just said, that's what social media does. That's the raw form. 
not very polished, works. You know, I mean, all of us here, we know what we do. We skip ahead because we've seen enough of them now, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? All right, I can hear you. But if we just kept that in our heads, that's what's going on. That's what's going on on our social feeds that we're drawing information about. Instead of questioning and looking. And, and now we have, you know, people who monitor that for us and tell us what's factual and what's not. We don't know who these people are, but, but they just tell us. And somewhere in there, we've become intellectually lazy in the process. Axford continues to write, Freedom of speech means everyone gets to express themselves. However, it does not mean that every idea deserves equal press coverage or even any press coverage at all. Thinking is hard work precisely because it requires us to critically evaluate the concepts to which we are exposed. It determines not only what is and isn't worthy of our time and attention, but which ideas have the potential to either threaten or enrich our lives and those of our fellow citizens. There are sound methods for making these determinations that have proven themselves over and over again, but they can't do us any good if we refuse to learn them. Amen? There's an intellectual kind of laziness. Isaiah 40 reads this way, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah is anticipating the coming of a time when there will be hope, a coming of a time when there will be a voice calling in the wilderness. So we, we start to play around with this juxtaposition. And the juxtaposition is the wilderness is represented by the chaos and the weirdness and the things we've talked about over these weeks as we've talked about you know, uh, uh, rivers in the wilderness, and we've thought about all of the scenarios in Scripture where people are in the wilderness and what it represents. And we talked at the beginning of the series how many times this wilderness experience is, is, is talked about and how often it's 40 years or 40 days and 40 nights. It's, we see it again and again, the flood and the time of Elijah's journey, and we've talked about all of those, Jesus' temptation in the garden. In fact, we're in the middle of the Lenten season, which is the 40 days leading up to the celebration of Easter, the wilderness, this time where we're evaluating, where we're going through hard times where we don't really get it. And Isaiah begins to articulate a second kind of wilderness. You will hear a voice of one calling from the wilderness. And now we get sort of a literal play on what's going on because we have this metaphorical wilderness, this hard time we're going through, this weird thing we're trying to figure it all out, the chaos that it represents. And then we have a literal wilderness, and we find out later that John the Baptist will literally be in the Judean wilderness, and he will be this voice, John the Baptist. After 400 years of silence, the angel visits Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Zechariah and Elizabeth have a child, and that child is John, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Matthew picks up the story in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for, your king, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John, in the literal Judean wilderness, so if you get this image in your head, you have Jerusalem, it's sort of up on the hill, it's up on the mountain, uh, you know, uh, if you leave out of the Judean wilderness and you turn and you make that path, you, you're climbing. You just climb, 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 climb. For miles you climb and you get up. Of course, you know, you're going from the lowest point on earth at the Dead Sea to Jerusalem, which is about 2,500 feet up on the mountains. And so you're making the hill. And so there's a literal sense in which you just visualize it. Up there in Jerusalem, there's all kinds of chaos going on. There's a wilderness all its own. There's the imperialism of Rome. There's the entrenchment of Judaism. There's the temple and temple worship with all the abuses that are going on associated with that. There's the zealots trying to overthrow Rome, those seeking an independent Israel. Uh, there's this incredible wokeness and all around the Roman culture who, you know, they're very, very open-minded. Uh, and, and then you have this juxtaposition of down in the Judean wilderness. You have a voice of one calling. And he's saying, come out of that. And this wilderness, this literal wilderness starts to represent a quiet place. A place where we escape the chaos. A place where we get back to the simple things. A place where we can see the stars and reconnect with the divine. And what is it that he says? What is he teaching? What is he talking about? How, how do we cope with the intellectual laziness of our culture as individuals? How do, what do we do about it? What do we do collectively? And so he begins to teach. And in this passage in Matthew, I, I see five things that I think he's calling attention to that matter to you and me. The first one is this. He calls for repentance. Stop doing the things that you know you ought not be doing. Turn away from them. Change. Be different. Go another way. That repentance is still the moment, the important time in which we look at our lives and we go, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to be intellectually lazy about who I am. In fact, if you ask me to, you know, just sort of critique the whole culture, then I would say, well, we got to be more honest about things that work and don't work. Wouldn't it be refreshing to have somebody stand up, whether an activist or a politician or a leader in any side, to say, listen, we tried this. It didn't work that well. We're going to try some more stuff. <laughs> Repentance. We're going, to, we're going to move away from things that don't work. We're going to move away from things that we know are not okay. We're going to move away from things that are destructive to our inner world, to our relationships. We're going to own it. We're going to be honest about it. And we're going to turn. We're going to turn. That word means literally 
turning away. There's an acute kind of turning, you know, where we've, we've fallen, we've, we've done, made choices, done things, and we, we, we need to repent of this action. But there are more subtle things, attitudes that creep into our lives and hearts and spirits. And I think when you're younger, you know, acute repentance is a thing because you mess up a lot, you know. As you get older, you just don't have the energy to mess up that much. Amen? It's not like you get holier. You just get tireder. You just are just tired. But oh, the chronic repentance that older folks need. Because we've become kind of entrenched in our attitudes and behaviors. And our older, our older, the longer you live, the slower sometimes, and all of us have this, we have sort of acute things that we can repent and leave behind, not do that anymore. And then we have things that takes us a long time to turn. It just takes a long time. We're just, but we ought to at least be turning. John Wesley used to say, I believe there will come a time when my heart is filled with the love of God to the point that it displaces all sin, that I will have a love excluding all sin. I believe this will happen soon after I die. Amen? Because the pursuit is this constant turning away, turning from things that we know, attitudes, thoughts, and some of them are chronic and they're deeply entrenched. I want to live a life of repentance. I want to live in a spirit and an attitude. I want to lead a church that is engulfed with an attitude of repentance where we don't feel afraid or ashamed to lay our head on our pillow at night and say, God, here's some things that I think I fell short on today. I just want to own them. I just want to say them out loud. I don't want to be intellectually lazy. I don't want to be spiritually lazy. I mean, let's be honest. The political wokeness of our world is a little nutty, isn't it? I mean, it's like they're building a perpetual motion machine. And we look at it and we go, I don't think this can work. And the cultural activism that's going on, while it may be well-intentioned, is very often it's like, they're building a perpetual motion machine. It just can't work. But listen, we're doing the same thing in the church. There's churches all over the place doing the exact same thing. Just a little different kind of activism. And when you hear it, when you hear the theology underneath it, you go, it's a perpetual motion machine. It just can't work because it's just not true. And part of what drives the church at its core is an attitude and a spirit of repentance. We haven't figured it out. We don't know the answers. We're turning. We're turning. We're trying so much to get to where we're fully facing the will and power of God. We're in no position to critique. But we are in a position to honestly say, this is who I am, and this is who we are. And it's okay for us to just say it out loud. We didn't do well with that. Second, he says, not only is it a spirit of repentance, it's a spirit of confession. The voice calling in the wilderness to get us out of the wilderness and to come to this simplified, literal place of quiet and simplicity and reconnecting with the Savior. We repent and we confess. And they're not the same thing. The idea of confession particularly is we unburden ourselves. We just sang about it. Lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. Come, all who are weary. Come, live again. The, the invitation is to unburden. Yes, we have failed. Yes, we have things to repent about. But we unburden our soul by confessing. 
1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. When we confess, we, we unburden our soul. And we need that. We need that. I, I don't know if you know this, but, but when you think about the government and you think about you know, political activism and all that stuff, that's craziness. And when you think about church, it's craziness. <laughs> and what they all share in common is people. People are crazy. Amen? We're all a little... And if you put five or six or ten of us together, the craziness grows exponentially. So we unburden ourselves. We, re we repent and we confess. We're not carrying this around. The third thing he says is there'll need to be some cleansing. There'll need to be some cleansing. It's represented for John in baptism, thus John the Baptist. Already, the image of baptism in the culture is very powerful. The pagans have a baptismal process and a baptismal ritual. The legal system had a baptismal understanding. And the baptismal understanding in the culture, in the world, in the political system was that once you were baptized, that person ceased to exist. That when you went under the water, you went under the water one person, but you came out a different person. So the law read, the Roman law read, that if you were baptized and you were in debt, that the, that the creditor had to retrieve the debt because once you came out of the water, your debt was gone. That person died under the water. It's a good system, isn't it? And so John steps into that understanding and he says, listen... Not only do we repent and turn, not only do we cast and burden ourselves, but we receive cleansing. And the imagery is simply this. The cleansing heals what's broken. It restores what's been taken away. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. John uses this baptism, a baptism of repentance, he says, in order to symbolize that there is a genuine sort of cleansing. Everything's getting washed away. A few weeks ago, we were in Israel at the Jordan River, and every year that we go, we do baptisms in the Jordan River. And just so you know, this time of year, March, the Jordan River is about 14 degrees. That's a lie. It's not that cold. It's uh, probably 50 degrees, but it is cold. And, uh, you know, and, you, know you, you feel changed. I mean, you go under that water, you will feel different when you come out. <laughs> But the powerful truth about Scripture is baptism is an outward sign of inward grace. We encourage you to participate in baptism if you never have, whether it's here in our baptismal or whether it's in the Jordan River. Or sometimes you, you know, maybe you want to do both. But the beauty of the gospel is we receive cleansing for asking. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I think when we hear words like righteousness, we go brain dead, we fall asleep. So let me just put it in the vernacular. And he cleanses us of all the unrightness. He fixes what is messed up. This cleansing moment heals what is most broken inside of us. It restores what has been damaged in our process. You want to fix all that craziness? You want to come away from the wilderness that is all that intellectual, lazy, uh, Repent, confess, be cleansed, 
And number four, be transformed. We're talking real change. So what's going on is in a culture, in a world, in a religion where there's very little transformation happening, mostly it's rote repetition of ritual. And suddenly, John, dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt, eating grasshoppers and honey. I, okay. is seeing actual transformation. People are going. They're working through the process. And they're being genuinely changed. Genuinely changed. And that's what we all want. I don't know why God doesn't just do that. I don't know why God, in a moment when I come and I say, hey, there's some stuff in my life I need fixed. I don't know why God didn't just zap me and fix me. Amen? Okay, let's apply it differently. I don't know why God didn't just zap and fix some other people. Amen? We all want to get to this point. We all want to get to this point of transformation. But somehow we fail to understand that this is the result of a process of repentance and confession and cleansing. We get to transformation in very simple ways. And they may seem old and trite. They may seem out of fashion. But the fact is, they work. So powerful is the transformation that is happening to these people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to come from the wilderness of Jerusalem to the wilderness of Judea to inquire. They, in fact, desired to package the transformation and take it back with them. Not that churches ever do this anymore. Look at other churches that seem to be doing something and go, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to copy that. (laughs) But they can't just take the transformation. They have to take the repentance, and that's what John says. So they show up, and John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You must bear the fruits of repentance. You are bearing the fruits of non-repentance. You need to bear the fruits of repentance. Repent, confess, be cleansed, and then be transformed. That's how it works. Number five, a new identity. He says to the Pharisees, you think because you're children of Abraham that, that it doesn't matter how you live, that it doesn't matter what you think, that it doesn't matter what you say, that it doesn't matter what you embrace. But I'm telling you, God can raise up sons out of stones. Here's what matters. You are the child of the living God. Your identity is not in Abraham. Your identity is in the fact that God knows you and loves you. One of the things that we share in common with so many cultures that have gone before is the depersonalization of God. In fact, it seems like if you look at any culture in history that has risen to any kind of power or affluence, you will see inside of that culture a depersonalization of God. Like he's out there somewhere, or maybe he is, or maybe he isn't. And that's invaded the church. I don't know about you, but sometimes people talk and you're kind of like, well, that's kind of naive. It's kind of naive to think like that, pray like that, act like that, believe like that. Why? Why do we think that inside the church? Because we live in a culture that's depersonalizing God. Part of what makes the political wokeness and the activism in our culture a perpetual motion machine is the fact that we have depersonalized God and left God out Change of human character requires something more than good intentions. It requires a genuine transformation at the core. No matter how much you fight them, 
at the end of the day, the problem isn't them. The problem is us. It's in here. We see it in our own hearts and minds and spirits. But God is not impersonal. Every prejudice about this book is about a God who knows you and sees you. The very hairs on your head are numbered. We bear an unbearable burden to figure out life. But that's not at all the image the Scripture creates. The image the Scripture creates is an image that says, God has prepared good works in advance for you and I to do. God already has in mind for us where we're headed and what we're doing. He knew us before we were created. He will hold us through all eternity. And this little time in between, this little reality that we live in today is not the be-all to end-all. We step into deep time and deep truth and we live in it because God knows us and He leads us. We talked about it last week. Even if this happens, He's got it. Even if that happens, He's got that too. Is that where we live? Is that the space we create? Is that the kind of communion in which you engage on a day-by-day basis? John says, listen, come away from that wilderness. Come into this quiet, simple space in which God sees you and knows you and He sees your kids and He sees your grandkids. And He will walk with you and hold you through all of the impossible things in life. Personally. Do you dwell in that space? Do you sit in it? Do you savor it? Do you soak it up? Do you breathe it in? Have we depersonalized God to a point that we no longer feel? All we feel is the reality of this wilderness. We don't feel the reality of this wilderness, this quiet space, where His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God, a child of God. I like this illustration. I think we have a destiny. <laughs> I think we have a destiny. I, th- I think we're on board a ship and we're going somewhere. God has a, a, a plan for us. He has an idea for us. He has a goal for us. He has a dream for us. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. Even when we mess it up, he just makes a new plan A. He just keeps coming up with better plans. No matter what we do, he just keeps going, I got a better plan for you. And I just imagine we're like on a ship and we're going somewhere and we have a destiny and, you know, we've been invited to go on this thing. And and every once in a while we ought to get up on the deck and we ought to take a long view of where we're headed and what our destiny is and participate in deep time and deep truth. But what most of us do is we spend most of our life down in the hold of the ship killing rats. We're just always stomping out something, cleaning up something, and fixing something, and worried about something, and rearranging something down in the hold of the ship. And we hardly ever come up on deck and celebrate where we're going in our destiny. And I think John is saying, listen, there's real transformation. There's real hope. You are a child of the living God. There's a plan. You're going somewhere. Celebrate it. Get up on the deck. Maybe there'll be some rats that have to get killed every once in a while. But don't spend your whole life worried about the rats. Celebrate who you are. Celebrate what it all means. Celebrate the joy of it. In a moment, we're going to share communion together. And we believe this. 
that this feast is for his disciples. And we say the liturgy runs like this. The feast is for his disciples. Let all those who have with true repentance come before him, come and partake. But just to stop for a minute this morning and say, you know, maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that. I invite you to pray one now. Simple. Repent. Confess. Receive cleansing. Be transformed. We're going to pray that kind of prayer together. And then what a powerful symbol. Communion. To sit in His presence. To take him in and let him nourish our life and our souls from the inside out. And today, you know, if you're watching, we, we've uh, changed our portable. So it's real simple. We'll take the bread first so you can put that end up. And here's a couple of wonderful things about this. They're easy to open. <laughs> and so you can get that ready. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks. We're thankful for a way forward. And we recognize that in being repentant, not only repentant as individuals, but repentant as a church, we're not critiquing the world. We, we hardly know enough to critique the world. We recognize that what you desire of us is a kind of humility born out of a spirit of repentance. We, we simply desire to turn away from things that don't work and turn more and more to fully face you, knowing that you built this world, knowing that the very things the world strives for, justice, mercy, equality, taking care of the environment, whatever it is, it's all built into the heart of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And so in our repentance, it's a confession that we don't think we know. We just want to turn. And we want to confess. You've said we don't need to carry around shame and guilt and loss. Hear our confessions as we unburden our souls. And you promise to cleanse us of all unrighteousness of all unrightness, of all the things that are broken and hurt and wounded, damaged. And to bring real transformation, change, growing in maturity and depth and Christ-likeness. And given a new identity, a child of the living God. Personal, intimate, connected, communing, speaking, resting. Trusting that you are leading us in ways we cannot see. But leading a plan. Something to rest on and rely in and trust in.
we're thankful. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. May you apportion grace to each person as there is need. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Now, God, we offer our hearts to you. I pray for anyone in this space who prayed a simple prayer of repentance and committed their lives to you. I pray that you would give them the courage to step out this week to reach out to a pastor that can walk with them on this journey. And I pray that you would continue to hear our hearts, that we would live in this space of repentance. Would you hear us now as we celebrate your grace? Would you hear us as we respond to your word? We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.